that's a shame because that's what you said. No, you know, I mean, nothing like rewriting, nothing kind of... Safeguarding 30,000 acres of wilderness, that's nothing. Fine. Being on the verge of setting up a podcast on Napoleonic history with a considerable level of investment interest, that's nothing? No, sure. podcast my name is brendan i am joined as always by my co-hosts kate hey guys and gabby hey everyone how's your headspace (laughs) (laughs) doing great nice and nice and roomy lots of tumbleweed rolling around up here um we are joined this week for episode 23 the disruption by historian podcaster age of napoleon host everett rummage hi everett how you doing hey thanks for having me i'm doing well Great to have you. Yeah, we have been talking for a while about wanting to have somebody on the show who could speak with a little bit uh, more authority about the historical references that Succession is so steeped in that are peppered in and seeded in throughout the show. Um, We had a bunch of them last week on Mass and Time of War with references to Alexander uh, mixed in with the usual sort of Napoleona. Uh, so Everett, we are really thrilled that you're able to join us, uh, so that we can finally dig into what some of this stuff, uh, means. And we'll talk for a few minutes about that at the top here, uh, before we get into what we thought of episode 23, the disruption. So I wanted to start by asking you, uh, Everett about the, uh, sort of reference to Connor's Napoleon podcast in season (laughs) one. Did anybody reach out to you, uh, when that happened from the show or just in general? Um, no one from the show reached out to me, but uh, I, I'm not exaggerating. I probably got a hundred, maybe more messages from people being like, oh my God, did you see that? That's you. That's more people than I even thought were watching Succession at that time. So that's uh, that's encouraging. <laughs> it actually it gave me a listener b- a bump, you know, from people, you know, I assume talking, you know, seeing it and being like, oh, hey, that show actually exists. So um, I guess I guess they did me a solid there. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, people who think of Connor Roy as an aspirational figure, they want to get into the stuff he's into. Uh, the conheads. <laughs> the conheads. Who doesn't exactly. want to run for president? I mean, come on. Yeah. So yeah. So generally, obviously, uh, there's tons of references to history. You know, sort of contemporary history, 20th century history, uh, but also this Napoleonic history is a big fascination of Connor's on the show. And so I wonder what's your read on that, Everett? Is like why is the show fascinated with the Napoleonic era and why is Connor specifically so fascinated? What is this sort of like mystique that Napoleon has that you sort of dig into in your work on the podcast that attracts somebody like Connor? Well, uh, I mean, it's a big question, obviously. 
Um, for one thing, uh, one big link between the show and the Napoleonic era is the music. Um, you know, that, that style of music that they, you know, that, that, that uh, era of classical music that they use on the show is like from the late 1700s, early 1800s, you know, the Napoleonic era. Uh, actually, the last episode, um, uh, Mass in a Time of War, that's a Franz Josef Haydn piece um, that is about, uh, you know, the time of war. The, the war is the war of the first coalition, which is where Napoleon made his name. So, um, you know, there's one, you know, obvious link. Um, it also, you know, Napoleon is a, you know, probably the, you know, just on a purely, <laughs> got to be careful of phrasing here, um, purely on a level of what he achieved um, as in, you know, his individual achievements is probably, I would say, the greatest figure of modern times. Um, so anyone who's interested in kind of greatness or or destiny which was one of napoleon's favorite um you know he was a really strong believer in destiny um so anyone who's kind of of that frame of mind you know uh, greatness destiny is going to be drawn to napoleon um i do think it's a little funny um you know in this uh, uh these uh these times typically it's like you know people like the roys the ultra wealthy who are really interested in him um but of course in napoleon's time all those people hated him you know, the, if you try to imagine the, the early 19th century equivalents of the Roy's, they would all think Napoleon was the devil. Um, and so it's a little amusing to me. You know, it's like if, it, you know, maybe like in, a, in 200 years, you imagine rich people like getting really into Stalin. You know, it's like <laughs> you know, if, if you were around when Stalin was around, you would not be a fan. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of like background and upbringing, would you say would you say that Napoleon really had much in common with the Roys, or he's really more of kind of a self-made uh, sort of figure than somebody who's born to immense privilege like the Roy kids are? Well, it's an interesting question because there's kind of two ways to look at it. Because on one hand, um, you know, unlike the Roys, Napoleon was a self-made man. Um, he was born into the aristocracy, but he was born into like the very very bottom rung of the aristocracy. Um, so he was seen by everyone as, you know, an upstart ruffian, you know, in that sense, nothing like the Roy's. But um, I do see um, kind of some similarities with him and and, you know, the patriarch, of course, you know, because once he was already in power, he put his family members in positions of power all over Europe. Uh, king of Spain, King of Naples, King of Westphalia, which is like Western Germany. Uh, King of Holland, these were all his siblings. Um, so you do kind of have that similar dynamic with the Roy family with, um, you know, the, there's the guy at the top who runs the show and pulls the strings and everyone's afraid of. Uh, and then you've got kind of everyone else sort of as little junior partners in this kingdom he's built, uh, all sort of angling, you know, you know, dancing to the tune he plays and angling for his attention. Um, so that's a very, a very familiar dynamic if you if you know about the Bonapartes. Yeah, I think the Roys are kind of viewed as uh, one of these sort of modern equivalents to one of these older sort of like dynastic powers where you see how kind of nepotism and being born to this lifestyle of privilege sort of breeds incompetence, right? Are there like earlier dynastic powers that you see as similar to the Roys? I know like the Habsburgs get kind of thrown around a lot as a power that was kind of done in by, you know, sort of inbreeding and nepotism. Do you think that that's a, a, an interesting comparison at all? Well, the Habsburgs, um, the Habsburgs were very subtle, um, and they didn't go, you know, they had this huge empire, but it's hard to look and say, 
oh, you know, this is the war where they conquered the big empire. Um, you know, the Habsburgs did a lot of what they did by um, marriage alliances was a big thing, um, kind of being in the right place at the right time. They were very subtle operators, which, you know, especially, um, you know, in lately, uh, the Roys do not seem like subtle operators, you know. No, um, They're not. either kind of spectacularly incompetent or like a bull in a china shop. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't – and the other thing about the Habsburgs – they were around for like a thousand years. So, um, you know, the, the Roy Empire already seems to be, you know, tottering um, after <laughs> only a few decades. So I'm not sure I would make that comparison. Sure. What about some of these more specific Napoleonic references that we see in the show? I mean, Connor's compound is called Austerlitz. Uh, that seems yeah. to be a, a sort of reference to the Napoleonic era. What do you, what do you uh, take from that? So I, I've actually given this a lot of thought because when that came out, I was obviously very interested in it, and that's a, that's a great episode. I love I love the uh, the confrontation scene in that. It's one of my favorite scenes in the show, um, and I think same yeah. <laughs> my theory on that is that basically Connor's compound is called Austerlitz. I mean, obviously, you know, it's Napoleon's greatest battle. So it's part of his Napoleon obsession. But I think that the reason that they gave it that name is so that they could call the episode that. Mm-hmm. Because the Battle of Austerlitz was about... Uh, so Napoleon pushed... It was start, A war started. Napoleon started the war with just a kind of unbelievable success. He surrounded an enemy army and made it surrender without fighting a battle, just by outmaneuvering them. It's a genius maneuver. Uh, and then he pushed all the way into Austria. He took the Austrian capital, and it was just kind of like everyone was stunned by uh, the, the strength of his uh, his attack. And then he just kept chasing the enemy. And the further he got from home, the more the enemy was kind of like, you know, he's really far from home. You know, every step the army takes forward, they have to put, you know, they have to peel off men to guard their rear. And they're now hundreds and hundreds of miles from France. You know, they're, they're, you know, their supply situation is probably bad. And they kind of convinced themselves without very much evidence that Napoleon was very weak and vulnerable. And they had to attack him. And he encouraged them in this. He, he did a lot of kind of intelligence stuff um, to uh, trick the enemy into thinking right. that he was weak. Uh, and they had this big grand battle plan. They were going to envelop his army and, uh, you know, surround him and wipe him out. And what ended up happening was, um, you know, not not unlike what happened uh, on the show, he was nowhere near as weak as these people had convinced themselves. And so when they thought they were ambushing him, you know, they were walking into a buzzsaw. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think we sort of circled around that subject a bit in our uh, episode on that. One of the other famous conflicts that's been invoked uh, in uh, some of the interviews about the show is Jeremy Strong has talked about Kendall this season in terms of Napoleon uh, sacking Moscow um, and, sort of, uh, and sort of the fire of Moscow um, and uh, this sort of idea of a, a Pyrrhic victory, you know, the idea that maybe Ken sort of wins his battle over the family, uh, but he also loses something uh, uh, pretty tremendous in the process. What can you tell us about the, the sacking of Moscow? And do you see any kind of like parallels with the kind of uh, mania of Ken's quest in this season? Yeah, um, I think you set it up very well. Um, you know, the first of all, the, the sack of Moscow is kind of overblown. It was the, the big fire was an accident. Um, I mean, it would have been very, very stupid to capture a city that you plan on occupying and 
you know, starting by burning it down. <laughs> those are the buildings you need to house your soldiers. That's the food you need to feed your army. Um, so, you know, contrary to popular belief, that was not intentional. Um, but I think um, kind of the uh, general opinion is that Napoleon uh, in that campaign was too focused on Moscow. And uh, the, the Russians were a very slippery opponent. He kind of couldn't land a good blow against them. Uh, you know, imagine a boxer who just keeps dodging and dodging and dodging. And it's like, you know, we're, we're supposed to be having a fight here. Um, and so Napoleon uh, convinced himself that taking the capital would be it. That would be the blow that he needed to land. Because um, the way he fought, he, he tried to move fast and, you know, land a knockout blow as early as possible. And so, the, you know, he was fixated on this idea of the knockout blow and he couldn't land it on the army. So he decided on the city and that turned out to be a disaster because, you know, basically uh, to cut a very long and complicated story short, they didn't have the juice to actually get back from Moscow. And it turned when it mm. turned out that they couldn't winter there and that they would have to march back. That's really when it turned into a disaster. So um, my guess would be, and I, you know, we'll see how it, how the, the season plays out. But my guess would be that um, we'll see, Kendall succeed in some way in his, you know, jihad against his family. Um, you know, I don't know what that'll what that'll be. Um, if that'll be, you know, seeing his his dad get arrested or or seeing, you know, however that plays out. In fixating on that goal, he mm -hmm. will have neglected something or have um, ignored something more important. Bigger. Yeah. Um, that that would that will ultimately uh, lead to disaster for him. That would be my guess based on based on that comparison. That doesn't sound like Kendall at all. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Neglecting something. Yeah, maybe his own sanity. I like that you use uh, the uh, the term jihad. Maybe we should have a Dune expert on next week to talk about uh, uh, Ken Muad'Dib. Um, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, uh, thinking about the sort of way that Ken talks about himself, it's been really interesting to me seeing this sort of historical language kind of evolve over the course of the series and the way that the show starts to talk about it. There's a lot of really fascinating stuff in last week's episode about the idea of kind of historical change and how that happens. Ken talks about, he's t talking to his siblings. He says, maybe they were always going to be death camps, but do you think that people matter? Do you think that choices matter? Um, and so I'm sort of looking at the past of like, what kind of figure does Ken kind of envision himself being? Because he talks about himself as sort of like this great man of influence who's going to change the company, change the world's somehow save the planet and stop climate change through his own genius and force of will, which seems rather deluded. Um, it seems more likely that if he wants to accomplish something good, he could maybe bridge some transition between his father's ways and between what the demands of the new world are. And so I've been thinking, you know, about sort of, you know, French kings like Louis the 14th or maybe Louis the 16th as sort of like different uh, paths that Ken might take, right? Somebody who reformed the French state or somebody who was at, uh, was at hand for this great moment of transition, but ultimately uh, couldn't meet the demands of the times. Um, I'm wondering what you think about that as, you know, people are very fond of comparing our moment of uh, financial inequality to the French Revolution. What do you think of that with regards to Ken and whether there are historical uh, figures, you know, children of great wealth and privilege and influence who Ken does remind you of, maybe? You know, Ken, he clearly sees himself as like a, an insurgent, um, you know, a guy who's on the side of the little guy somehow in some way. It's funny, uh, that seems like such a modern thing, 
But you do find a lot of characters like that in the era of the French Revolution. Um, I think people, you know, in kind of the popular narrative, people think of it as, you know, there was, you know, there was, you know, this society kind of coming apart at the seams and then the people stormed the Bastille and then all the crazy stuff started. But actually, um, the really radical phase of the revolution doesn't start till the, like, early 1790s. There were years between the storming of the Bastille and, um, you know, the real, you know, the terror, the guillotines, the war, um, the civil war. Um, that stuff started much later. And in the early phase of the revolution, it was totally dominated by guys like Kendall. You know, people who were these, you know, kind of... Uh, in, in the historical literature, they're often called uh, the liberal nobles because they were these people who were often from, you know, extremely privileged backgrounds, but who did want to change the system and, and did um, have at least some level of sympathy with the common people. And um, I got to say, you, you look through history, people like that do not have an amazing track record. Right. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of being either fish nor fowl, uh, especially when you're, you know, because revolutions are crisis scenarios. They're not, people think of them as being triggered by revolutionaries, but that's not really ever the case. Usually what happens is the state kind of enters a crisis that it can't solve and it collapses. And then the revolutionaries sweep in, you know, in the aftermath. Uh, there's very few cases in history of kind of an organized rebellion overthrowing a government, you know, without some outside crisis. Um, and, you know, people like that don't, don't do well in crises. Um, they don't have the, they don't have a real genuine connection to the people that they think they're representing. Um, and they're not seen as, you know, part of the club by the establishment because they're, you know, um, you know, for instance, Louis the 16th, he didn't, he didn't consider the people at all when he looked at the revolution. He thought that this was all drummed up by these liberal nobles because they wanted to overthrow him and get in charge themselves. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, looking at kind of historical models from people like Kendall, uh, there are not many names that I don't think most people would know because they don't achieve very much. You know, I don't think I don't think most people know who the, the Duke of Orleans was during the French Revolution. He was a very important figure, you know, for a time. Um, but he, you know, he couldn't really collaborate with the powers that be because he was seen as this radical and he wasn't really a part of the revolutionary movement either because he was, you know, a cousin of the king um, who lived in a palace. And so, you know, guys like that just end up, uh, you know, if they're lucky, they end up sidelined. If they're unlucky, they end up uh, in jail or dead. All right. So uh, the outlook, not so good for Kendall, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't okay. know. My takeaway was like he, he's going to win it all the first time for the first time. He's going to make history here in the show. Sure, you could get pretty good odds on that. So you know, put your place, place your place your place your bets now. So uh, yeah, we wanted to transition into the episode proper and maybe talk about how some of these ideas sort of influence what's happening in a very busy episode this week. Episode twenty-three is titled "The Disruption." It's directed by Kathy Yan, uh, and this is another episode that sort of deviates from the sort of uh, 
single location sort of play-like style that uh, Succession has honed over the last few seasons. We have a lot of locations, a lot of incidents happening here. Um, So we'll get into a brief plot summary and then dive into what interested us most about this episode. So in the disruption, uh, Kendall gives a major interview during which he declares his intentions to plant a flag at Waystar. Hoping to discourage him from coming to the physical offices, Shiv attends a journalism gala where Ken is speaking. She's unsuccessful and similarly rebuffs his apology for the outburst at Rava's condo. Ken, continuing to fixate on his media narrative, impulsively decides, against his lawyer's advice, to crash the Waystar offices, where they have no choice but to sneak him in. Only Tom meets with him face to face. Later, making her debut as president of domestic operations, Shiv leads a town hall to address Waystar concerns, but is interrupted by a damaging prank in which Kendall arranges for wireless speakers to blast Nirvana's Rape Me over her speech. Furious, Shiv entreats Roman and Connor to sign an open letter detailing Ken's personal issues and history of substance abuse. They refuse, and she ultimately issues it alone. Ken receives this news as he is due to make a live appearance on a political comedy show and backs out at the last minute, seemingly crushed by Shiv's betrayal. Meanwhile, Tom grows increasingly concerned about his legal situation and off-screen seeks the advice of an unseen friend. Receiving bad news, he consults first with Shiv and later with Logan, offering to give himself up to the authorities. After receiving polite reassurance from Logan, Tom makes a secret call to an outside law firm. Throughout the episode, Logan's refusal to accept service of a subpoena worries his inner circle. He makes an attempt to flatter, then threaten White House aide Michelle Ann Vanderhoven. However, when the FBI raids the Waystar offices that night, Jerry reasons they were tipped off by this conversation. Logan is finally forced to cooperate with the investigation as the raid becomes major news, which has the side effect of deflecting media attention from Ken and from Shiv's open letter. Whew! So, a lot going on here. A lot happening. This is uh, an episode about how uh, hurt people hurt people, basically. Uh, Ken and Shiv... (laughs) Ken and Shiv end this episode in a very low point. Logan is sort of back on his heels, and there's this really evocative image of the FBI, uh, you know, with all their jackets on, sweeping through the Waystar lobby. Uh, You really do have this sense that this sort of big outside force is sweeping through, and that sort of history is maybe happening to these characters who have, you know, so far throughout the series been the kind of shapers of reality. just quick general impressions. I mean, uh, you know, Gabby, Kate, Everett, how did we like this episode? Um, has uh, Have you taken to it over subsequent rewatches? I, I liked the episode. I, I definitely, I think, um, prefer kind of the stylistic, uh, more play-like um episodes like as we saw in in the last in the last episode um but upon rewatches yeah I like it there's a lot going on um this is the first time like you said I think that we're seeing for the Roys like the external world is impressing upon them instead of vice versa and it's really interesting to watch that play out um in in a lot of different ways um, so I liked it. it. It wasn't at the top of my uh, list, but I, I enjoyed that. Gabby, no, you had a list. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably my my favorite episode so far of the season. Um, you know, it's very buzzy, but upon rewatch, um, you know, a lot of the themes synthesize, and um, you know, I, I really did enjoy the direction of of Kathy Yan. There's so much going on in this episode. Um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the role of of sort of online life, social media, and so forth. But one scene I wanted to bring up before we, 
you know, get into all of that was Logan and Shiv in Logan's townhouse. Um, nice to see the townhouse again, by the way. It's been a while. Um, and in this conversation, uh, Shiv is questioning Logan about what he knew and, you know, what's going to happen and so forth. And um, Logan has this line where he says, the law is people, people is politics, and I know a people. And this is like, long been established as Logan's view of the world and his philosophy in business. He very much prides himself on his ability to cavort and go toe to toe with people. Um, you know, he leaves out sort of external elements and, and the whole corruption element, but Hey, you know, Logan's great with people. That's how he got so rich. And that reason alone. Um, <laughs> so with all of this in mind, you know, Logan and Waystar have never had to face real consequences for their misdeeds they've always been shielded um from from any uh, real material consequences and everything is image and image can be fixed um and I, I especially liked how in this conversation logan brings up the tin pot ports registered in bongo bongo hovel nations um that their cruises travel to um essentially you know caribbean islands and territories and whatnot and um that if they had to strong arm, you know, the old uh, the old union boss, and then so be it. Um, he also justifies the actions of cruises and and sort of the cover up. Although he does claim that he didn't really know what was going on, but I mean that has to be bullshit. Um, so he justifies it by noting, you know, that he did it for his kids—a familiar refrain that we've heard from Logan. But also how much money Waystar brought into these countries. Um, so Logan, once again, espousing like this very kind of Reagan-esque conception of the world, which also got me thinking about Logan's relationships with past presidents. And I'm sure he was thick as thieves with Reagan, um, <laughs> you know, but he's had the ear of presidential administrations. He has armies of lawyers. He has very, very highly trained PR experts and communications experts at his disposal. But um, this moment is different. The stakes are becoming more real, more material, um, and where the Roys and Logan used to be able to kind of exploit their political connections to avoid repercussions. Um, you know, and we see that play out in kind of in his conversation with Michelle Ann. Um, but we'll get to that later. It was a great scene. And, you know, now there's actual risk and they may not be able to kind of bulldoze their way out. Um, you know, a lot more discussion of, of prison, the FBI, um, you know, and, and Logan kind of keeps insisting that, um, no, you know, we can just tell them to fuck off. But, um, you know, clearly they are sort of losing control. Right. And yeah, and this loss of control in the sense that things are changing, obviously, is something that plays a huge part in this episode. And one thing that I think is really interesting um, is it's not a coincidence that this episode is very heavily interested in online and it's very interested in social media. Um, and this is something that we've sort of, you know, talked around and joked around and sort of cringed at, right? The idea that the, the show is more online than ever. We talked even in our preseason episode about how we were hoping we could we could log off a bit and just focus on the show. But uh, but success 
Succession won't let us because Succession wants to talk about online even if we don't. Um, but I think it's but the, I think that the sh- the way that the show treats online life is uh, really purposeful, and they have a coherent. Uh, strategy for approaching it and the way that they use online in this episode is that it stands in for this very loss of control that these powerful characters are experiencing right everybody's very anxious about what people are saying online you know this idea that there's like a there's this big outside force coming this mob that's coming for them you see them literally in that last in that shot of the the big crowd of the fbi jacket sweeping through that's almost like a visualization and then that cuts to ken in the in the server room right um, sort of surrounded by technology, you know, in the premiere app, there are all these characters, you know, Ken is constantly asking people to read the internet for him. He's asking Greg and Jess to read the internet for him. And now in this episode, there's all these shots of characters, you know, looking at screens, there's less and less that they can do to sort of influence their own lives. They're sort of passively watching things happen to them uh, instead. I mean, uh, Kate, you had some thoughts about this too, right? I mean, about uh, that conversation with, you know, Michelle Land and how uh, that sort of hints at this loss of control too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it's it's interesting um, when he is talking with Michelle Land Logan, um, and he uh, she points out that you know the president has to do something because people know that the system is broken, right? And his response is paranoid fantasies. And it really made me chuckle to myself because if we're to believe that ATN is anything like Fox News, whatever world they're living in um, where there are paranoid fantasies or issues with, um, you know, uh, thinking the system is corrupted, you know, you reap what you sow, bitch. I'm sure that ATN has been hammering home these ideas. And, and, and now that it's, you know, the world is turned on him, right? For the first time, like you were saying, the external forces have changed and they don't have control. They can't control the narrative anymore. Um, right. Also is highlighted to me when, when Michelle Ann, like, points out about these, you know, what's happening in Wisconsin and how it affects Iowa polls. And at one point we hear that, you know, POTUS is doing better with Latinos. Like for the first time, the ex, but the external world, this stuff that normally has been their playground is actually now turning against them and working against them. Um, And it's really funny, Brendan, that you we're talking all about the social media aspect and we never really see Logan as a direct contrast to kind of the real world we live in. Logan's never really on the screens and he doesn't really ask about the screens. He's reminded by Michelle Ann uh, in these conversations of what's happening, but it's a real contrast between new media, old media and, and the world, the bridge that they kind of have amongst Ken and Logan here. Yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a coincidence that this episode that is so it's so much about Ken's sort of like Twitter addiction and his addiction to seeing himself on talk shows and stuff. It's not a coincidence that this is also one of the episodes that uh, sort of brings ATN back to the fore. Right. We see some scenes where, uh, you know, Tom is glad handing with, you know, talent. And I think some advertisers at that dinner at the end, um, we actually see uh, Mark Ravenhead's talk show, which we'll get into a little bit later. But there is this deliberate sort of like uh, counterpoint setup, right, where it's like these sort of older forms of media, even though, you know, like, uh, you know, TV news is not is not really old media. Uh, but these but the sense that Waystar is a little bit behind the times and they're a little bit uh, trying to play catch up. Right. We're spending a lot more time with Hugo and with Carolina. 
right? And we were doing these in-person town halls, these sort of old-school methods of crisis management. There's that really funny uh, bit where they bring out the poster that says, we get it, and Roman and Shiv have to be like, well, <laughs> that's, it's not great. It's not great, is it? And it reminds us of We Here For You, and there's a We Here For You poster that actually makes a cameo in the kind of uh, ATN hallways, right? But this is sort of like the new world and old world conflict that we've seen before, right, Gabby? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been established since the pilot. I mean, if you think back to that first conversation between Ken and Logan in the dining room um, after Ken has just learned that he's not going to be um, brought up to be CEO, there's you know, the tension there of old world versus new world. And is it more important to be good with people and to know how to strong arm people? Or is it more important to understand business fundamentals? And, you know, Logan kind of, um, uh, you know, infantilizes Ken a little bit in his business acumen. I know you've read a lot of books, but sometimes it's a big dick competition. So um, it's it's nice to see this tension sort of uh, re-arise in this context um because um you know so far it's looked like it's been working out for logan his his style his method um you know has brought him pretty far but you know maybe this is a tipping point but you know is ken the vehicle to actually usher in um new world and i think uh that all the social media stuff was kind of um you know poking some fun at that and there was there was a lot of fun to be had in this episode well, there's a lot of scenes of uh, kind of underlings uh, really kind of being run over uh, by the people at the top, right? Because if you know, if we're looking at parallels between Logan and Ken again, right? Like Ken is sort of, you know, obviously he's talking over Comfrey, his PR person. He's talking over Lisa, and he, you know, it's really funny in the car where he goes, you know, you're the boss, as he's doing exactly the opposite of of what she says. But and then I really like that scene of uh, Carolina and Hugo trying to negotiate Ken's entrance to the building, and the very confused, flustered security security people going like no 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 he can't go in no 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 you can't authorize him to go in and you what you're seeing in that moment is not only a the really interesting uh phenomenon of these pr people taking in sort of like expanded roles within a company during a crisis that aren't necessarily you know that's not really their job to do a lot some of the things that they're doing uh but uh, also logan's really sort of blunt clumsy top-down forceful style causing real kind of logistical problems for his operations where people just can't perform basic functions because they're trying to reconcile his uh, his needs and his desires right i just want to also quickly just canon corner hugo's title um his job title we learn in last in our justies from last season and it's um senior vice president of communications parks and cruises so it's also some confusion there. Carolina is technically above him, um, even though it doesn't necessarily come across that way. Yeah, they need to be wearing epaulets or something so I can keep track of kind of who who outranks who, right? Yeah. But yeah, you know, there's this um, hunker down mentality with Logan and Waystar not wanting to be exposed. I highly doubt uh, they are asking the kids to post on social media. All of that is probably being very carefully controlled and curated. Whereas Ken is just kind of hitting this cultural circuit running, um, opening his kimono, so to speak. He wants to be seen um, bad, you know, for better or worse. Um, and, you know, both of them are yeah, defying advice from people who they should be listening to, which has happened before. And, um, you know, until forces beyond their control intervene and uh, sort of have that come crashing down for both of them. So one thing I kept thinking about um, watching this episode was 
uh, the scene or the episode uh, where they testify before Congress um, from Mm. last season. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because that was the last time there was a big confrontation with the government. Um, And that was it was very it was played very differently where, you know, if you recall that episode, um, there was a lot of jokes about like, oh, well, you know, that senator's fine. We own him or you know, it, it was kind of, I mean, they were taking it seriously, of course, but it was, it seemed a lot lighter and less threatening yeah. um, than the government did in this episode. I thought that was very interesting, the way that they, um, you know, I mean, part of it's just the inherently, you know, the FBI is a lot more menacing than Congress. Um, but um, I thought that was very interesting and that they did a very good job of kind of, uh, you know, showing that there was a different, uh, different tenor to this confrontation than there was to the last one. Yeah, I think it signifies kind of a change, a sea change in this season, as opposed to kind of the previous seasons, as we were kind of mentioning, you know, like they've had control over the environment and whoops, this is, it's now, and that control is inverting and it's coming in on them. Um, and I imagine we'll see that, like the repercussions of that for the rest of the season. Um, you know, manifest in different ways. That's another really interesting way that the style of this episode, which as we mentioned at the top is very, you know, sort of like lots of locations. We're not really in a single location. There's no like sort of like big one, like sort of high concept that the episode is based around. Um, And, you know, one of the things that that style of episode does when things are a bit more contained is it gives you this kind of subliminal feeling that you're sort of, you know, to borrow a phrase in the room where it happens, right? You're in the the room where sort of like powerful people are making the decisions that shape the world. Right. And there is this sense in this episode that not only are we not in that room, but there sort of is no room that these dynamics have kind of breached containment, that they can't really uh, be nailed down. You know, in D.C., it's like there is like sort of a coat room you can step into. Right. Or, you know, you can go literally into the. Uh, into the hearing space, into the chambers uh, where this sort of theater is conducted. But there is really no sort of central battlefield here. There is not really a place for people to get a grip on. Um, Instead, people are sort of living, you know, again, in this world of perception, in this world of online. And uh, that's implied to be, you know, not a particularly pleasant place, as we see in, I think, one of the most hellish scenes, short of bore on the floor, that this series has produced, which is good tweet, bad tweet, uh, which, uh, you know... (laughs) Ken and his entourage consisting of uh, uh, Naomi and Comfrey and Greg and uh, a watch salesman whose name I'm blanking on, but sort of, uh, sort of, sort of instantly scanned to me as just a sort of grotesque goblin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Howie Bling, but like looking like a sort of uh, you know Yale frat boy or something. Just really a instantly twenty year old Howie Bling. Instantly disliked to this guy, but yeah, ever, in the in the back of this uh, limo, they're playing good tweet bad tweet, which is this game where basically everybody's name searching right, and they are uh, sort of trying to find tweets that are good about Ken and tweets tweets that are meaner about Ken because he just sort of wants to be in the conversation, right? And there's the sense that Ken thinks it's really important to be in on the joke and what I was really reminded of especially with this party atmosphere in this limo was that it's like a prom limo or something right and it's sort of like we're in high school um and uh and 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 there is this and that brings in this really poignant kind of underside to this scene which is that Ken uh for the moment thinks that he is one of the popular kids and he doesn't realize that everybody's actually kind of making fun of him and that everybody feels sorry for him a bit um he's sort of you know like king for a day or something um but he doesn't realize that he's sort of uh living this 
fantasy, uh, which is, you know, very uh, wittily punctured in that scene where, you know, Comfrey reads out a tweet where uh, he's like, actually, he has mental illness and this is this is just sad. And everybody goes quiet for a second. He's clearly having a, like experiencing a manic episode because he's clueless that, he, you know, he's not in on the joke like he is riding a high and and can't like come to terms with the fact that like he is the butt of the joke until you know at towards the end of the or at the end of the episode and we kind of get the sense that maybe that high has ended Um, right but 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 yeah it's it's wild they're all i mean it's very high school it's very it kind of reminds me like of my own personal experience with online and Twitter and it can regress my own behavior, you know, to be, you know, childish. Um, I think, you know, Twitter especially encourages and rewards like online juvenile behavior and like hind my kind of defending your friends, not defending your friends kind of thing. Um, And so because they live in the world of online now, I, you know, it makes sense that this is, they're kind of brought down as well. to that level yeah and if you're gonna go for sort of a uh, live action like meat space approximation of what twitter is like i think this scene is a pretty good one yeah um and and it pay- and it really paid off i think and really just in this scene alone the episode as a whole but just in the scene alone the casting of dasha nekrasova as comfrey here uh because not it's it we've already talked about how it's funny that they've basically just cast her on the show to read tweets so far um which is pretty <laughs> funny um but you but you also do have this sort of perception that you know one of the appeals of red scare sort of almost is that it i think from the people that that for the people that like it is that it's kind of like listening to these like mean catty popular high school girls you know gossip Mm -hmm. and stuff and that's you know and and i think dasha's persona very much kind of has that uh sort of built in and so her presence there i think really brings in not just this idea of the social media feedback loop but also that uh very high school dynamic you're also in there with um playing naomi annabelle dexter jones who does come from this very like rich uh sort of socialite family and she fits really well in that world yeah a limo of douchebags except for that poor girl who we you know we never learned the identity of can i just say i want naomi's necklace if any listeners out there want to treat me to a christmas gift or you know hanukkah whatever uh i'd love it it's great love that necklace yeah, but yeah, Ken is having a ton of fun here. I mean, like the, you know, should I give him something and the fuck the patriarchy. Um, the best part of that moment, by the way, is is right after that when Greg walks behind them, like covering his mouth, like, can he say that? That kind of thing. That was, that was the best part of that little moment for me. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's you know, becoming clear that Ken's intentions here are, you know, very self-serving. Very self-serving. We're not sure if he even, you know, really cares about any of this stuff at all yeah and i mean there's this sort of sense that you know like as as high-minded as he's been talking about his intentions and his plans to save the planet and fix history and all this stuff uh his tactics are very childish he's basically engaged in pulling pranks in this episode you know crashing waystar and saying that he's gonna have uh his uh his body man remy you know film him jumping the turnstile uh that's you know that's that's you know he's he's basically doing you know the uh you know back at it again at Krispy Kreme. you know he's uh he's there to do a viral video um um, and then he and then he uh, pulls this prank with uh, with Shiv, which is you know honestly you know pretty good as far as like 
you know, targeted pranks go and that it's, you know, if people have got video of that moment of that uh, Nirvana song playing over her speech, like, yeah, that's going to go viral and people are going to be talking about that online. Uh, but it is very sort of like blunt force and it is sort of childish on a level. Yeah. Sure. And Jeremy Strong just embodies the mania so well, like physically, just the way he marches into the Waystar offices, his like shoulders held high. I know Brendan talks a lot about when Ken is sad, um, that he sort of has this like slumped, you know, status man in the world body posture. Um, and, you know, it really just like, <laughs> it makes you hate Ken. I mean, the way that I can uh, kind of oscillate back and forth between thinking Ken is the worst person in the world and kind of just like, oh, feeling bad for him is so impressive and such a testament to Jeremy Strong's acting. Yeah, you really get both extremes of that in this episode because he's simultaneously as insufferable um, and sort of repellent as he's ever been, I think. Uh, and also, you know, in the, in the end of this episode, you know, as sort of pitiable um, as he's ever been. Does anyone else have a hard time sometimes watching his scenes? Sometimes I have to pause because, like, it's not that I'm not enjoying it. It's like I'm just – the cringe is too much. Are they too intense? Is that – or – Intense. And I, I, sometimes I start to kind of not sympathize with him, but I can kind of – I don't know. I'm almost seeing too much, and it's kind of too pathetic and too lame, and I just – I have to, like, so pause it. You're vicariously and, and... embarrassed for, for him. Exactly. I definitely groan, but as you guys know, I see myself in Ken, which is even worse. So, you know, there's like, yeah, I'm groaning, but then I'm also like groaning at myself. I know what it's like to come at to like for a manic episode to, you know, and 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 like that level of shame and embarrassment. I think we're going to speak a little bit more about that, at you know, later. But um, yeah, no, it's heavy. It's heavy. It, it's it's it's. It's heavy and cringy because he's clueless. He's so delusional, Ev. And I mean, I guess I can say maybe I'm not that delusional because I see myself in him. So, um, but we're cutting all of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, uh, Ken's very alone in this episode. You know, we really get yeah. to we really get the sense that he's you know he's he's got his entourage around him, but in a way, he's more isolated than he's ever been. And there are these themes of sort of uh, isolation and cooperation, as they talk about in terms of the investigation, uh, that are really drawn out a lot in this episode. And these uh, themes that we also saw in season two's Safe Room, which was another episode that spent. Um, a lot of time. Well, it really spent all its time at the Waystar offices. Um, these themes of kind of like persecution and siege. We've already been talking a lot about this idea of sort of outside forces sort of sweeping through uh, the building. You know, we also get, as we talked about before, ATN and the glimpse that we get of uh, star anchor Mark Ravenhead's show uh, is that his show is called The Bunker, uh, which is on which is on one level, you know, a very obvious kind of joke because we've previously learned that Mark Ravenhead is potentially a huge Hitler fan. Uh, so The Bunker is a pretty, pretty pointed joke on that level. Uh, but it also really lends itself to this idea, uh, you know, that ATN's real life counterpart, Fox News, plays on a lot, which is the sense of besiegement and paranoia and, you know, of sort of unjust persecution um, and needing to sort of hunker down and defend oneself from forces that are encroaching on all sides. 
Um, that's a that's an idea that gets played with uh, a lot in this episode. I also thought that you know you could sort of tease out since this is the first time we're seeing the bunker uh, that maybe the sort of active shooter incident or supposed active shooter incident uh, at ATN in Safe Room has right. bec- has has perhaps become part of their real life narrative that perhaps they've played into that and perhaps that Ravenhead has made that part of his own image um, as somebody who has had to deal with sort of real life threats on his life. I'm curious, did anyone here read, um, there was a a profile, it was quite some time ago, he's dead now, but there was a profile of Roger Ailes uh, years ago, who was, you know, the former head of Fox News, um, who uh, talked a lot about how he's um, extremely personally paranoid. Like he he woke up every morning basically thinking he was going to be murdered. Um, And I, I thought that was really fascinating at the time because... It seemed like that, you know, that some of that, the, the paranoia, the siege mentality that you saw on Fox News was like a genuine expression of his own life um, and his own feelings. And I, it really made me, this episode really made me think about that with Logan, um, because, um, you know, when you said, you know, you said, we, like you said, we saw, we saw a glimpse of his, his network uh, programming. And then, you know, later when he's thundering against the FBI, it's kind of a similar mm-hmm. vibe. And, you know, like you said, the bunker, there is that that um, evocation of a siege uh, maybe, or maybe of a, a, a dictator screaming <laughs> impotently at a siege um, the way Logan was. Everett, I definitely think that Logan sees his life as him against the world, even when it's working for him. And, you know, in his way, we kind of get the sense that, um, you know, similar to a lot of reactionaries, you know, personal grievances left and right. And um, so I think, yeah, it all ties in fairly well. So it is a great point that there is a lot of Ailes in Logan. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Ailes's boss, Rupert Murdoch, is uh, sort of the actual germ of inspiration for succession, and he's a more popular counterpoint. Uh, but Ailes is paranoia, and I think in particular in season two, you know, the way that we see um logan really furiously trying to combat the efforts of a biographer to write a book about him um i know that that has some real life parallels uh you know there are other famous figures who have done this but ailes you know quite notoriously fought uh the biography that gabriel sherman wrote about him and you know set private investigators on him and all this stuff um so yeah that's that that is a that is a really germane i think comparison uh between those men um but uh something else that gets brought up in this uh this idea of bunkers and isolation is this idea of the headspace, which uh, Ken brings up in his opening interview <laughs> with uh, some reporter. We don't know who he's being interviewed by. I don't know. I kind of assumed it was like some, uh, you know, like the Washington Post or something. I assumed it was like some big right. interview. But but Roman immediately makes this big joke out of this that Kendall says, I'm just really happy in my headspace and I hope they're happy in theirs. Speaking of his family, um, sort of disingenuously implying that the, everybody's cool. Um, but this idea of, you know, the headspace, uh, you know, uh, is uh, is a rather lonely idea when you think about uh, where Ken's actually at. We were talking about this before the episode, right, Kate? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, to me, it stuck out. Um, you know, it's the last thing he said before the intro starts. I'm just really happy in my headspace. You just said it, so I won't... Um, I really hope they're happy in theirs. And for me, what that evoked was this idea of we're all these atomized beings living around, living, going around in our own headspace with like no cohesive reality. And, and specifically in the Roy's world, especially with the kids, you know, they're all 
as codependent and needy as they are with one another, they don't, they don't, and this is the issue with codependency, it's not healthy. Um, you don't have a shared relationship. You fit certain parts certain parts of yourself fit into what makes your relationship instead of having an actual, uh, you know, genuine relationship. And so it just had me thinking, again, this is, you know, a, a kind of piggybacking on that social media idea. We all are creating these own headspaces or bubbles that we live in, and we can just, like, surround ourselves with that. And that's really sad in the end to think about and, and totally isolating and lonely. Like, that we're all just living on our own little worlds and not sharing it with anyone else. And, you know, that's not the case for everyone, but that's definitely the case for Kendall and, and for the folks, the Roy's, I believe. Yeah, we made that joke about uh, uh, Ken being in that kind of server room at the end uh, at the TV studio, just sort of like he's surrounded by these, uh, you know, servers and stuff. And it's sort I'm of getting like he's... there, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like he's at the Matrix or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. At the tail end, um, uh, at the tail end of of the episode, and you know, after he's coming down on his uh, his manic high, um, you know, yeah, he's all alone in a server room. Which again is, is I mean, it indicates it's kind of similar to safe room. It's maybe not as evocative as him, you know, looking at a glass, um, not able to, you know. It's not evoking the same uh, level of um, suicidal ideation, for example, but th there's something happening there and in the technology and the symbolism. First, he's alone in the server room and he breaks down um, and, and, and then he's with his phone, which is, you know, what we all are at the end of the day, at the end of the night, um, at the end of a manic episode. Yeah, very much what Ken has been, you know, throughout this season, like we mentioned before, and um, in this episode in particular. I also really appreciate the writers using the term headspace um, because it's become like this very popular new agey type of, you know, like pop psychology term. Mm -hmm. um, it might have been born out of the fact that there's like a very popular meditation app called Headspace, um, but oh, I do yeah. hear I do hear the term all the time now, and in an episode that's very like zeitgeisty and talking about online, um, you know, I thought it was very very funny and apt that they picked that up. So should we pivot to Logan? Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's uh, time to check in with uh, with Logan with Brian Cox. This is you know I, I I keep I always bring up like oh this is a good Brian Cox episode. Like I'm surprised by it as if he's <laughs> as if he's as if, as if he's ever less than you know uh, Brian Cox. Uh, but uh, but this is this episode really does um, you know we we've talked about how it ends on this really uh, evocative image of Ken alone. Uh, but it also the sort of plot action of this episode is really driven by Logan's refusal to cooperate with this Justice Department investigation. Right. We learn early on that he is refusing to accept service of a subpoena, uh, which is a pretty, pretty bold move. Right. Because there are, <laughs> there are ways, you know, that the government can force you to accept it. Right. Um, and it's uh, this open show of defiance, basically. And he's as much as he's trying to, uh, you know, pull strings behind the scenes, he's really not making himself any new friends in the government by making uh, this public 
uh, show of defiance. And the episode ends on this very dramatic moment where the FBI are at the door and uh, we see Logan uh, finally backed into a corner, forced to uh, reverse himself and uh, instruct his staff to start cooperating with the investigation. And we've uh, talked this episode about how sort of, you know, blunt and obvious and prankish and clumsy uh, some of Ken's moves are, uh, but also sort of Logan's management style. And, you know, one of Logan's positive qualities is that he's very bold and he's, you know, he's very assertive, uh, but he also is kind of a blunt instrument. He doesn't always have a lot of subtlety, and that really gets him into trouble in this episode. And we see a lot of his uh, his inability to really grasp the nuance of his situation uh, in this really great standout scene, I would say, uh, with Shiv at the at his at his penthouse, um, where Shiv asks the question that Shiv sometimes asks, which is, "Can we talk?" Meaning, you know, can we can we stop being polite? Can we start getting real? Um, and uh, uh, you know, it sort of asks him to put his cards on the table and, and explain what's the worst thing that could be in those papers. Uh, and he just kind of completely waffles, blusters, you know, tries to charm, uh, vacillates, uh, and refuses to give her a straight answer. And, it, and it's a really fascinating scene for this relationship between Logan and Shiv, which we've talked about in the past. You know, Shiv seems to be sort of the favorite child, his only daughter. Um, uh, but we sort of see in this scene how superficial that relationship kind of is. Um, what do you, what did you think of this, Gabby? You know, it's important to frame every conversation that any of these people have with, you know, the appropriate amount of cynicism, but, um, you know, there's something more emotional going on here, I think as well. Like he, he really did seem to be seeking validation from Shiv in this scene, um, insisting that she, you know, he, nothing would make you ashamed of me, um, in, in all these papers. And sure, I was on the emails, but, um, you know, I, I never check my emails. I get a million emails a day. And uh, the stuff about cruises was, you know, it was a long time ago. And, you know, I, I really need your support. Like Jerry was just, you know, it's just optics. But, you know, I need you. I need your protection. And, um, you know, I wonder, like, you know, is he does he genuinely value her opinion as a person and as his daughter here on what actually went on and what he knew? Is there any latent guilt or shame um, in knowing that he hurt all of these people? I mean, the easy answer is no. Um, but it does seem like, uh, you know, Logan is is um, somewhat preoccupied with how Shiv sees him, even, you know, if it is just kind of ultimately about the business um you know there's something about this scene that i felt was um a little bit more earnest than we usually get well well it's certainly earnest in that i think he's letting his uh, uh his motives kind of show through um because you know once again i mean shiv has been given this kind of bait and switch right where she's been named president uh but the thing that logan's taking her to task about is why aren't you out there publicly defending me more it's like i thought my job was working for the company and defending the company and he really sees it as more about no 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 i need you to defend me you know you know every time that she thinks she's being given more responsibility or more importance more power more trust it really just redounds to you know i need you to you know take orders directly from me um and you know bend to my every whim like everybody else who works for me um you know 
And uh, there's this, you know, we talked about in episode two, the idea of Ken trying to penetrate the kind of bullshit layer of sort of legalese and weasel words uh, that people use to talk around complicity. And Logan absolutely just like machine gun fires every weasel word in the book at Shiv in this conversation. I wrote down some of them. Uh, All this hullabaloo, not all that bad. A A few bad apples, some salty moves. I don't read my emails. Uh, it was a quarter century ago, a lot of it. You know, it just... Uh, but just... on some level, it's like Shiv is getting what she deserves because this is what Kendall tried to do to her last episode and she refused. Well, yeah, you know? it is. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, you know, she's she's between a... She's caught between these two men and she feared she would be, right? She talked about this with Lisa, about she's afraid she's going to get chewed up between these two guys. And that's uh, that's kind of what's happening to her. She's kind of uh, stuck between, you know, her insane brother and her insane dad. Yeah, and I think Shiv and, uh, and Logan, you know, they're, they're similar. We've talked about the ways that Shiv emulates Logan. Um, and I thought it was interesting that at the end... Uh, at the end of the town hall after Shiv sort of has her meltdown and she walks into dad's office and he's like, now do you see Pinky? Um, you know, I think he, he wants her um, to understand his grievances and his personal hurt. Um, and, you know, this situation, I know some people speculated that, that it was a setup from Logan, the, the rape me thing, but it was not. Um, you know, I, I oh, thank God I didn't see that. Oh my God. Come on. <laughs> Well, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Logan Logan wants to get Shiv in the fold. Um, he wants her to to understand why it's so important to him uh, that that she defend him because, you know, he sees himself as again, it goes back to this paranoia thing. He's being constantly undermined and humiliated. He's surrounded by snakes and rats. Um, so, you know, to to get Shiv under his wing in that sense might be a, you know, a real goal for him. I kept thinking in that, in the scene between Logan and Shiv, I kept thinking of, uh, uh, I believe it was last episode when Kendall said, you know, you're the new me, you're me now. Um, because that, um, sort of had for me echoes of some of the early scenes between Kendall and, and Logan in earlier seasons, him saying, you know, I know that you think that you have some role here that's, you know, beyond doing what I tell you to do. But really, what you're here to do is what I tell you to do. <laughs> you know, Shiv is, um, you know, to talk about her, the dom- the president of domestic operations. I mean, she's genuinely ecstatic to have this bullshit title and be given responsibilities finally. I mean, you can see her smile is like so genuine when she announces herself as Waystar's new president of domestic operations in the town hall. Um, and so, you know, I thinks of that humiliation for her um you know it was deeply personal i i really kind of enjoyed uh sarah snook's performance in this episode a lot she showed a lot of range in her her facial expressions um you know i think it's maybe the most rattled we've ever seen her um and you know she she obviously has that scene after the town hall when she's very upset and makes um, all sorts of faces in Ken's office, eventually spitting in his uh, planner. And um, she also makes a great face um, when she has the conversation with Ken at that journalist dinner when, um, you know, mm-hmm. Ken's kind of fucking with her and condescending to her. And she says, you know, do you really care about this or is it just about ego? And her face just kind of, um, you know, it's sort of this neutral rage. 
Uh, so just just very impressed with Snook in this episode and, um, you know, this uh, ongoing perception of, of Shiv as sort of the good one <laughs> is, you know, I think over now. Um, but it was also funny in the, the you know, Sophia Wobie show when she's called uh, the fucking nice one. <laughs> the nice one, yeah. I, I, I got to say, I mean, you know, Shiv kind of, and I don't want to pile on the Shiv hate here, but it's kind of a moment where she gets what she deserved because Kendall, as we talked about last, and we're vindicated from our discussion in the last episode, um, when Kendall tried to get real with her and she absolutely refused. And so she, if she wants to try and get real with Logan, you know, she's getting the exact same thing that she gave to Kendall. And we learn, just like we said in the last episode, that she knew about all this stuff because Tom told her with cruises. And, you know, so it's rich. And I do feel sorry for her. She's very excited. Logan has teased her her whole life. Uh, teased all the kids about, oh, I, you're the number one. You're the chosen one. I love you the most, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it is sad, but at the same token, I feel like she's get is she reaped what she sowed. I I think the conversation with Ken at the dinner, um, there's a real earnestness yeah, there. It might be a, it's it's a diluted <laughs> earnestness, but the way she kind of frames it as like, okay, can we move past right, you know what right. happened at Rava's apartment? And like, yeah, I know this shit is fucked up, but maybe we can fix it from the inside. Again, it, it's delusional. You know, they can't fix it, but it's earnest. No, I agree. That was a really soft moment. It reminded me of um, kind of that safe room the hug moment, even though, you know, we didn't have that reciprocation like we did in safe room, but it definitely had that tenderness quality between the two of them. Yeah. Um, And, you know, Shiv, when she's pleading with her, you know, she's obviously been utterly humiliated and she's furious and, you know, she's, there's sort of this parallel scene to last week's bedroom scene where she's now pleading with Connor and Roman to sign this letter. Um, You know, and Connor and Roman, similarly to, to, what the content of the conversation was in Sophie's bedroom. Um, they don't deny that, that what's being presented is true, you know, um, about, about Ken, but there are serious implications for them complying and it's, it's deranged and it's cruel on Shiv's part, but, um, we know that it's, you know, something that has, um, that there's always a response, you know, someone strikes a blow and there's a response and this is her response mm-hmm. to her humiliation. Why? Well, you know, her brothers mm-hmm. don't outright say it. The implications of their decision um, are very, very personal. And I think maybe demonstrate kind of like an unconscious desire to be better than their dad and not resort to this kind of like ruthless bullying that Logan has partaked in, um, yeah. partaken in their, their whole well, life. There's a lot here, but um, I want to, uh, 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 back up just a bit and i do want to um push back a bit on what kate was saying about shiv sort of getting her just desserts for not siding with ken because i really disagree that that was that it was the correct decision to side with ken in that episode because i think the show really plants enough doubt and obviously a lot of it's played out in this episode about what ken's sorry headspace is and right. you know his his ability to sort of follow through on his goals and so i th- i think that i think that the tension here uh, between ken and shiv is really interesting it's not a dynamic that we've talked about a lot even though we're invited to do it in this episode but i think if we find ken you know more appealing or if we find ken's cause more appealing than the co- than the course that shiv takes um then mm-hmm. i i think that it is because on some level 
you know, as deluded or unrealistic or odious in some moments as we might find Ken, there is an element of the idealist to him. You know, he talks right. he talks in this episode about, you know, he has that really funny line where he whispers really breathily to Tom, another life is possible. Um, but, th- but that's sort of what he's on, right? He's sort of like, he's pursuing it in this very clumsy, deluded, manic way, but he does, he is kind of seeking something, right? And that's kind of what we find inspiring about him, you know, um, and find kind of sympathetic about him, you know, through all of the sort of perverse ways that this show illustrates that. And the reason that Shiv, I think, is a bit harder to stomach sometimes um, is because she is a cynic. She is a very, very mm. cynical person, um, and her and she doesn't have the same ideals that Ken has, really. And so much of her character is about trying to negotiate the idea of what ideals are palatable or what ideals are sympathetic uh in the in the world that she lives in and a lot of that is because you know she is a woman she's a professional woman um and there is the sense that her sort of she feels that her horizons and her options are very limited she doesn't see she doesn't see the things that she can achieve for herself as being as you know inspiring or lofty as what ken can she sees i think that the best she can do for herself is sort of uh, try to negotiate these uh, sort of brutally limited options that are presented to her. And that's, I think, why I think why the humiliation at that town hall meeting stings so much. Not because, you know, she really thinks that the job of president is so great. You know, when Logan offers it to her, you know, she does sort of recognize right away that it's bullshit uh, in a sense. Um, but she feels that she's doing the best she can. She feels that she is accepting this sort of position, this lady duty work to sort of be the face of this crisis and do cleanup work. Um, but she's going to approach it with dignity and with poise, and she's going to do the best she can at it. And when she's humiliated uh, for her efforts, that's what stings the most, is that even this uh, sort of debased, uh, cynical middle path that she's chosen for herself is always going to meet her uh, you know, with humiliation. Um. <laughs> right yeah uh, yeah has always yeah. thought of, of herself as on her own um you know and similarly with after connor and roman won't sign the letter she says you know thanks for the help as always and she has said in the past you know nobody tells me anything she definitely um you know thinks of herself as as um you know handicapped in a way compared to to her brothers in terms of of gaining a foothold in, in the business and in the family um, you know, and whether that's her own doing or not, you know, it regardless is how she feels and how she sees herself in the world and her position. The uh, the line in that, um, uh, you know, the Z-Way show, the Sophia Wobie show, um, where they read that letter aloud, this letter uh, or portions of this letter aloud that talk about Ken's. Uh, delusions, his history with women, um, his sexist rants, you know, alluding to uh, what he yelled at her as she exited in uh, Mass in Time of War, um, and uh, his history of substance abuse issues. Uh, the, the sort of button on that bit that Z-Way says is, and she's supposed to be the nice one. Um, and the implication there, I think, is that everybody recognizes that what Shiv has done here is not very nice at all. And that what Shiv has had to do, she feels, in order to regain her dignity in some way, to strike back at her brother, um, to strike a blow for a blow, uh, is give up this perception that she has as the sympathetic one in the family. Uh, everybody sort of is beginning to see her uh, for who she is and who she is and who her father wants her to be is really an expression of his will and of his sort of mercenary attitudes and his blunt force approach to life. Pretty, pretty sad. Kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is sad. She has to negotiate being a woman 
and also having, you know, no experience in the Waystar, um, you know, back in the Waystar background. It's, I mean, she's, yeah. She isn't. It's like Turnhaven at the end, you know, when she, she's definitely rattled and we can see that. And it is sad. Um, I definitely, I do feel for her. Um, while at the same time, you know, still harbor my own resentments. I mean, that's what's kind of that's what's kind of fun about the performance, right? Is that mm-hmm. she, you know, it's, it's Snook makes it so easy, I think, to root against her because she yeah. does she does present this facade of being so perfectly unflappable. You really do long to see it cracked, just for some well, just yeah. for some dis- disruption, you might say. There, you do <laughs> long to just to just see that ruffled a bit, um, and it is exciting when it happens. You know, I mean, that shot of her spitting into the daybook is really just kind of you know fantastically evocative for that sort of just like sudden eruption on the screen it's the kind of thing you don't see that often on succession it's really it's very viscerally felt her her feelings in that moment um it's it's uh, usually been the way that she treats tom that um you know viewers have thought of her as sort of an asshole but now um you know i think people are coming around to seeing her as you know for the cynic that she is I have to say, what in this episode, what coupled with you know the way that she, uh, the way that she, what really bothered me was how she did seem to throw Tom under the bus very quickly um, in an earlier scene. I'm not sure we're going to get into that, but um, you know, in terms of encouraging him to take the bullet, um, you know, it is very what was the word she used? It's punchy. It's punchy, you know, and I don't know. I just, I didn't find, I I didn't find her advice much like, much like other bits of advice or words of wisdoms from her. I found it pretty duplicitous, but to be fair, all the characters are that way. So. um. Well, it's another, it's another one of those fun scenes with Shiv. Another thing that Snook is really good at playing is, uh, playing these, uh, like really these conversations that are like very serious for Tom, but where she's just like barely aware that it's happening. It's like, they're the, <laughs> right, they're the only right. people, they're the only people in the room, but somehow she's just like not listening to him. She's like looking directly at him and she hasn't heard a thing he's said, just like in one ear and out the other. Um, it's, uh, that, that, that's always, that's always kind of funny to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we have this section about Ken. I think we've honestly hit a lot of this stuff already. Um, you know, as long as we're talking about acting, I did want to talk about just the, uh, the sort of Jeremy Strong acting style, um, because, you know, we were we were talking, uh, I think, before recording about the way that uh, Comfrey, the way that Dasha plays off him um, is kind of interesting to watch. Uh, and I, I like the way that just thinking about the Jeremy Strong, very method approach to acting, this sort of electricity that he has around him in a scene where he he does have this touch of unpredictability. Um, I really do think that that adds some juice to these scenes where everybody is not really sure what's going on with Kendall or where his head is at or what he's going to do next. Um, I think there's a really interesting charge there, especially when you see somebody um, like, you know, like Dasha, who's a little bit newer to the show, acting opposite him. There is this real just like you know hesitance around him you know like he's made of glass or something that i that i enjoyed a lot in those scenes yeah the way she has to kind of tiptoe around um his questions at the end about the letter when you know when she's breaking the news to him and he's kind of like well this is private right like no one's seeing this (laughs) she's like oh no (laughs) yeah the one thing i i did want to mention is similar to logan he surrounded himself with yes men and women 
Um, you know, we're con or I'm constantly thinking of how he's different from Logan, but um, he definitely from the limo scene on, you know, this, this is his PR team. They shouldn't be in an entourage with him. And yet they are. Um, or maybe I'm misunderstanding how PR teams work, but uh, yeah, he's definitely surrounded himself with yes men and women. And even if they dare to disagree, such as uh, Lisa or Comfrey kind of gently, um, you know, he just overrides them. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't care. Um, he doesn't listen. Uh, but he's, he's delusional. As yeah, I mean, said, even, his sort of wack, again. even his sort of wacky moment in, in the office when he's like, you know, worried about the air conditioning not being the right temperature. And, and, and I think, you know, we can see what Brendan was speaking about, um, you know, and this sort of uncertainty that charges the scenes because of his acting style. We see it a lot with Jess and the way Jess reacts to him and her discomfort um, and her sort of walking on eggshells mm-hmm. around Ken. And, you know, for someone who's with Ken 24-7, I mean, she seems to be constantly stressed out to be in his presence. That's very accurate to the way that, I mean, as I understand it, those kind of executive assistants function, you know, they just very expansive job duties and, uh, you know, and no, cl- no clear boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, entourages and sort of underlings and, you know, personal staff um, are, I think a lot of attention is paid to those in this episode, not only because, as I've said before, it's interesting in some moments to see Kendall kind of without anybody at his side who works for him or who's in his family um, to see him physically isolated. Uh, but we also get a glimpse of, you know, some people who previously worked for him, uh, like Colin, uh, who makes another appearance uh, in this episode, who is, I, I, I think, I don't think we see Logan explicitly summoning him. Um, but, uh, but he's implicitly summoned, uh, to, uh, to pay Ken a visit when Ken returns to his office and they have a, a stare off that is, I, I think clearly just meant to, uh, intimidate, <laughs> to kind of throw Ken off yeah. his And game. it works! He says, I know you. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, you know, again, calling to mind the crash and, um, the way that Colin was sort of the fixer of that whole situation and Colin is Logan's fixer, um, and I am very dismayed to have to do this, but guys, Colin has been in the show since the pilot. Um, I'm not going to name names, but a couple of writers and podcasters at um, other outlets have expressed confusion as to who Colin is. Um, some just simply calling him some guy, some not even sure Um this is the first time they've ever seen him. And I, you know, I brought this up last season when a, a closed captioning uh, had, you know, sort of named Colin like man, that um, Colin is a really important person in the sort of world building of succession and the way that Logan um, operates. And he's been involved since episode one. I mean, he tackled Greg in the lobby. <laughs> he uh, gave the NDAs to that groundskeeper family to sign um, right. After, you know, Roman's, you know, disgusting little act there at the softball game. And he's always by Logan's side. I mean, he's his head of security. And, um, you know, you can watch the show more closely and um, see that he is always there. I mean, he wasn't in Croatia on the cruise. So maybe that, you know, it's a recency bias thing. People, that's, you know, that's what they're thinking of um, when they, they start the season. But, um, you know, I just want to, you know, give a little shout out to Scott Nicholson, the actor who plays Colin and um, you know, guys watch, watch the show more carefully. Don't, don't scroll your phone. <laughs> Boy, I, 
I don't know how you can um that that scene where he describes to Kendall you know how how he took care of the yes. crash. Oh my Episode god! Burned into my brain. One I don't know how you missed season that. Season two, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Like, fine. I maybe I can forgive you not remembering him from season one, but but the that fixer scene right. um, in the summer palace. I mean, yeah. How can you not remember that? I used to be a crime reporter, and boy, they really nail the way that those like kind of ex law enforcement like security you know quasi operator types they all talk like that um with that that extremely like kind the of israeli um, are we talking about um Mossad? we got it we get the israeli uh you know call uh company call out in this episode yeah we gotta get we gotta get ever consulting a consulting gig out of this if nothing else comes as a result of this podcast but yeah colin great to see colin again surging surging back to the top of the power rankings colin uh in this in this episode I like to call him the ghost of Christmas past because he's going to haunt Kendall for fucking ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he is the only person aside from Logan and Marsha who knows what happened. So, yeah, just just a great symbol of kind of portent and death. You know, I, I think of I think about that shot at the beginning of episode season two, episode nine, D.C., where the scandal's breaking and Logan's taking a walk in the park and uh, Colin is just sort of following a few paces behind him, like the specter of death haunting him or something. <laughs> um, it's a it's, it's it's a great image. Colin has been used, you know, even silently many times to great effect on this show. Um, so a big a big moment for him. Um, we are running long. Uh, we do want to get through uh, some of the other characters. <laughs> there, are, there are still more characters on the show that we have not discussed. Um, there is some some good Roman material in this episode. Uh, he's uh, tasked to do a TV interview to sort of boost his dad's reputation and share some fun uh, childhood memories. As Hugo suggests, it would be great if Shiv or someone like Shiv uh, could do this. Um, Roman, I guess, being the the closest thing they have in the room to to Shiv at that moment, even though he's not somebody that you ordinarily like putting on uh, on TV. Um, So uh, he's sort of tasked with this. And Gabby, I don't know if it's that he's you know, sort of the most willing to stand up for his dad or just that he, as he said in season two, like a fireman in a movie can just kind of step up and, you know, do what's asked of him. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about Roman and his strengths a little bit, um, you know, in our last few episodes, um, maybe that he's more socially adept or at least like self-aware than his siblings. Um, He's definitely the sibling most willing to kind of do uh, shit work for dad that no one else wants to do. And I think maybe that speaks to him being, somewhat less delusional about his position. Um, you know, some examples include the, the photo op at Austerlitz, you know, when his siblings have, have left for that. Uh, the trip to Turkey, there's past references to his work in L.A. with Frank that, you know, he didn't really want to do. He does, um, you know, the the training uh, at the park. And, and you know, so he's kind of willing to eat some shit. I think that's, um, you know, always kind of been his position. But um, this, this, was, uh, this was a rough you know episode for for roman um so you know roman kind of uh, brings up this memory of of fly fishing in montana um as the one thing that he could um reference in terms of of you know familial happy memories and then it turns out that it was actually connor who took um roman on that trip i mean he doesn't have a single happy memory he can point to with dad um, and I'm kind of, you know, surprised that Connor taking on like a parental role of the kids hasn't been brought up more. I mean, it's usually the kind of thing that becomes like a major grievance for older siblings. And he's alluded to difficulty in his life, but it seemed like that was mostly about his mom. 
But now that I do think back to Prague and his sort of his recollection in that episode of the dog cage stuff, Connor is probably tasked with like a lot more parenting duties than we realize. Um, doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean he was he was good at it, but he was at least present in a way that the kids' actual parents were not. Um, and I think you know it it, it definitely brought up a lot of. Um, you know, feelings for me and, and sympathy for Connor, which is maybe why we're learning about it now. You know, we can't be too sympathetic to any of these characters. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's another rough moment for, for Roman when, um, you know, he's kind of discussing this with Logan after, after the fact. And, um, you know, after complimenting Roman on, on staying late and working with Jerry, um, he just absolutely guts him by uh, saying, I never figured you for a faggot. Um, you know, that was like a knife. Um, it was sort of reminded me of Shiv's insult. Uh, you need to, you know, you're going to need to learn to fuck something someday and that it really hits him where it hurts. Um, but obviously just far more brutal and cruel. And, um, you know, just this idea of Roman as a punching bag and you can just hit him and he'll take it. Uh, I'm sure it was sort of a, a sad moment for some viewers too, just, uh, you know, really reinforcing the cruelty of Logan and, and sort of, um, Roman's position. Well, the irony here is he's the one that was willing to do it, you know, and then he gets punished and scolded for doing what his dad asked him to do. But that's the relationship his father has nurtured with him. Um, You know, I mean, that's what I was thinking when we were talking about Roman being willing to do all these things. He's the guy that was idealizing his dad last episode saying, oh, you know, dad will always win. Dad can't. So he has this unrealistic idea of who his father is, as they all do. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's pretty sad that he gets punished for being the one to do the thing with which Logan asked. Yeah, I mean, kind of like Shiv uh, stepping up to do the town hall, right? Like, no mm-hmm. good deed goes unpunished in this episode, right. right? You know, you step in and try to help your dad, and the only way that he knows how to reinforce things is, you know, through pain, through humiliation, through abuse. Um, you know, that that that, uh, that through line is very much in this episode. I, and I, it's another scene where I was really impressed with the way that Cox played it. Um, the, I think, casual... The casual nature of you know the way he th- the way he throws out that line the very just like uh, dismissive way that he treats Roman is just I think breathtakingly cruel I think uh, but he really successfully plays that as something uh, to which yeah that that is that is fun to Logan you know yeah like playing with a small animal or something yeah I, <laughs> I like the stuff about Connor I, I got I was th- I'm thinking of this image from like the Godfather too isn't there a scene where like Fredo takes Michael's kids fishing or something uh, in the God in the in the Godfather too Con- Connor's kind of a Fredo I don't think he's gonna suffer the same fate as Fredo necessarily um, but uh, that, that, that that was the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking of that scene. Um, but I, I do want to make sure we discuss the really interesting stuff that's going on with Tom in this episode. You know, we've we've talked a little bit about uh, Greg being part of uh, Ken's entourage and one of the uh, the uh, first uh, physical Tom and Greg scenes we get this season is the two of them meeting to discuss uh, a, a friend that Tom is going to go visit, right? Who's going to give him an objective read on the situation. We don't see who this friend is, but we get the sense throughout the episode that Tom is sort of feeling out uh, what his legal liability is after uh, his experience on the yacht, reinforcing for him that this family, that Logan and that his wife cannot be trusted to kind of protect him. He tries to, uh, he tries a sort of like, uh, 
placating strategy. He suggests uh, sort of drunkenly to Shiv uh, that he might give himself up. And Shiv says, no, Tom, stop. You don't have to do that. That kind of thing. Again, sort of like barely listening to him, but then sort of throws it out like, you know, you could say that to dad and it, and I don't think he'd make you do it. So, you know, you might just bank some gold. You might bank some goodwill with him. Uh, and then he does uh, broach that possibility uh, with Logan, who seems sort of taken aback that Tom doesn't seem to have an angle, that he's just offering this. Um, and uh, he and Logan does seem rather surprised and somewhat appreciative, uh, but doesn't really uh, give Tom, I, I think, maybe the reassurance he was looking for that it won't come to that. Um, I mean, Logan does literally say that, but, you know, it doesn't really carry much weight uh, from him. Uh, there is this expression of sort of, you know, like a, a hungry cat eyeing Tom in that scene that Cox has. Um, and then uh, Tom makes this sort of furtive phone call that appears to be to a law firm that we haven't previously heard of on the show, suggesting that Tom is hiring outside counsel. So this is very ambiguous to me because, you know, I, I was looking at some online speculation and uh, I think a lot of people were unclear on exactly what Tom is up to here. How sincere is his offer to give himself up? And what is it about that conversation with Logan that cues him to uh, hire an outside lawyer? Because it does seem that he takes something away from that conversation uh, that says, OK, I've got to uh, I've really got to fly solo here. I'm going to be on my own. Yeah, I was disappointed that Greg um, didn't join him and accept his offer. Again, it was like sort of uh, the high school dynamic, like Tom is not the cool kid, Ken is the cool kid. But, um, you know, Greg does end up getting some karmic retribution for that and having to pay for a $40,000 watch. Um, but I, I do wish that we were getting a little more about what's going on with Tom. I mean, again, just because, uh, you know, I love McFadden's performance so much. Um, and this has all seemed a little vague and subtle. And even just like Greg being back, at the offices seems a little bit confusing and without explanation. And so, um, you know, the two of them are just, are so critical in all of this. Um, you know, I hope that maybe, you know, they get a little more screen time, a little more, um, you know, a little more, it was really nice to see them back together. I mean, wasn't it? You know, I, so much of that, yeah. like so much of the so much of the physicality that McFadden is really capable of bringing to the show and to this role is missing when he doesn't have a character like Greg that he feels comfortable kind of like you know shoving around a little bit. Um, and you know, he's he does some really great hand acting. You know, like poking his finger in Greg's chest and things like that uh, in this scene. Uh, yeah, the great business about the watch, right? That Greg's like, oh, I've got I can't come meet with you tonight, Tom, because I've got to go meet with ken he's gonna buy me a watch and tom's got the line it's like you sold yourself for a watch i'll buy you a watch dickwad um and uh and of and course that's uh, true and ken and yeah tom, and, and tom and tom would have bought him a forty thousand dollar watch no question <laughs> Tom would have bought him the watch and, and, and Ken does not. And, you know, and it's possible that Ken would if he really understood uh, what it meant. But Ken, but Ken is, you know, he's surrounded by this entourage and these underlings and he's not really thinking about them as people very much right now. He's more concerned with his uh, his online space and he's not really thinking very much about how to treat people. And it's possible that uh, a simple gift of a $40,000 watch, which is probably not very much money to Ken, uh, would have made a big difference to Greg rather than him having to, you know, I'm sure liquidate his savings and his crypto wallet or whatever he has um, right. to, to, he's to buy the thing. He's at the height of a manic episode and he's a dick and that happens. Not to overly rely on the like mania, but I, you know, I do think if he were in a normal headspace, he would maybe consider it. Yeah. And then Greg, um, he does end up calling Tom to warn him about 
Ken's visits to the office. So so maybe, you know, we'll we'll get back to, to the old faithful of those two. He's playing both sides still, as always. Greg is like the all angles player. He's at, you know, he he yeah, he's very um I don't know if the word is savvy at that. Maybe it's gonna come back to hurt him, but uh, he's the uh, he's he's the Machiavellian fuck. That's who he is. Uh, he's that's he's, right. pl- he's yeah. playing all he's playing all sides, and since nobody really thinks very much of him, he's uh, he's able to do that. Um, even when Ken Ken's whatever Ken's plans are, they would seem to probably rely on Greg to some degree. That still hasn't been clarified to us. Uh, but uh, but Ken's not uh, again not not thinking as straight as he ever has here. Um, so yeah, we're uh, we're getting to the point where we want to start wrapping up. We do want to talk about some side characters we haven't talked about yet. Um, I think uh, we did talk a bit about um, Linda Iman, her on-screen debut as Michelle Ann Vanderhoven, um, who works in the uh, President Raisin's White House. Um, wouldn't it be funny if his name actually was Raisin? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna we're just gonna refer to him as that. Um, but yeah, I, 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 when I when we heard that Linda Iman was gonna be on this show, I was like, that's just that's gravy. That's of of course she's gonna fit like a glove. You know, this is one of the, one of these one of these actors that can do just about anything. You know, somebody who you know, as the saying goes, understands the assignment. Um, but uh, but she uh, really uh, is impressive in the scene in the way that her character Michelle Ann is able to match Logan kind of beat for beat emotion for emotion she's able to be kind of like funny and joking and disarming when he's trying to charm her at the beginning and when he switches to this threatening mode she's able to back that up and uh, and go right toe to toe with him in that moment and you know bring uh, sort of all the implied power uh, of her station to bear on him uh, and so it's a really well played scene I just I, I love this she's actress phenomenal. I'm, I'm, she's, I could watch that scene like over and over again it was funny um i just yeah uh you you called that one correctly brendan <laughs> i was really pleased to discover today that uh linda Eamond has a twitter account but she seemingly only made it to promote her appearance on a lodge 49 fan podcast uh so uh she's Ooh, so she's that's uh why she... someone called out lodge 49 to me <laughs> so she's uh, uh she, she, she she's our kind of person uh big fan um, yeah, we also have uh, the uh, comedian and TV personality Z-Way here playing uh, Sophie Awobi, the TV comedian, the late night comedian that Kendall is sort of obsessed with. Uh, the show that she's doing is not really Z-Way's show. Um, her casting is, again, something that's kind of witty because the show, I think, is clearly modeled on something like Samantha B, like Full Frontal, this sort of, you know, like where the host is actually standing up and delivering, you know, I would say fairly hacky um targeted you know political commentary um you know in front of a green screen uh but uh but z-way's whole project her actual show that she does you know in real life known in succession is sort of about uh trying to disrupt sort of like the talk show format and introduce mm-hmm. some unpredictability and some authentic discomfort into it and so it's very funny that she is here playing uh you know and, and playing into this format that i think is kind of tired and i think the show thinks is a little bit lame and tired uh, but something that Ken is nevertheless kind of obsessed with being in on. He's like, she loves me. It's all out of love. <laughs> yeah. Clear dilute. I mean, that's really when you know that like he's fucking out of his head is, is when he thinks that these are compliments and he's yeah. And that she loves him. It's, 
it's it's that's painful but all press is good press yeah that's that's the most like high school you know like prom king for a day thing is just like yeah it's 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 like he's Carrie. you know he's uh he's like they're 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 dumping the pig blood on his head and like right before it hits he's like this is great this is the best night of my life you know brendan Um, it's so funny you keep mentioning queen for a day because that is what he definitely needs with (laughs) queen for a day right (laughs) right (laughs) well and we know that is what he needs he needs a moment to be able so it's funny you keep referring to that and that's like literally exactly what he needs <laughs> uh that that's a great connection kate because that wasn't even on purpose so uh you can uh, you will <laughs> and you mentioned I, I, I it give twice you the credit it's for that. just yeah yeah everett i'm sure you loved the z-way samantha b bit right it was very funny <laughs> it was uh the normally it's just the ken parts that i have a hard time watching but i had well, a little hard time watching that too which i'm sure is what they were after because they they did they did nail that that style of those shows but we see uh we see jerry uh just a little bit in this episode trying to exert her new influence as ceo um and uh, uh this is apparently just pissed logan off to no end and frank has that crack about we should reboot pinocchio a puppet that that comes to life uh or whatever um, also mocks her um yeah. you know so she's kind of not exactly hit the ground running as ceo but that's what logan you know kind of set her up to to be sort of fall lady she's also not looking nearly as hot as in season two which i'm sure is intentional as well she's flustered she's you know she's not having these looks um yeah she's not having looks she's more just back to like kind of back to basic season one her hair is up and stuff um but you know she's busy Yeah, and then just kind of like towards closing notes, I wanted to just again shout out the direction of this episode by uh, Kathy Yan, um, who's one of the first time guest directors that Succession has brought on. Um, Like, as I talk about all the time, you know, I I get very used to and very sort of defensive of the uh, really unique sort of play-like style uh, that this show has honed and that uh, producer and director Mark Mylott has honed on this show. Uh, And... Kathy Yan doesn't really get too much of a chance to play with some of these sort of longer dialogue-driven scenes uh, that are sort of the signature of Succession. Uh, But she does bring, I think, uh, a greater kind of focus on uh, some of these really impressive shots of just like architecture uh, and and these increased focus on composition. And a lot of people have shouted out uh, the sort of long close-up that tracks on Ken's face as he sort of retreats uh, from the Z-Way show. Uh, at the end and shows his the sort of like changing light and his sort of falling expression as sort of the impact of Shiv's letter hits him. It's a really good, oh. I think, pairing of just kind of performance and direction and image. Um, and certainly as I rewatched this episode to prepare for recording this podcast, um, the direction was really growing on me. So I just wanted to shout out the direction that I, that I quite liked. Yeah, as Ken's walking down the hallway to the studios, it, it's like it looks like he's lo- marching to his own death it reminded me of like dancer in the dark um (laughs) as you know he's marching to his uh you know own death and and yeah it's just it's a really intense shot as he's like coming to terms with everything and it's all hitting him and the shame and embarrassment and so that'll be my final thought was that um that was really powerful um and 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 as we you know mentioned earlier the ending with him in the matrix uh in the server alone gabby favorite line moment 
Yeah, I mean, this is just because I, I, I kind of miss Matthew McFadden. I was talking about that a few minutes ago, but <laughs> when he communicates his feelings via Mondale, his dog, um, that was just so funny. Mondale's not feeling well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mondale's unsettled. <laughs> His, his his familiar in a sense. Yeah, so yeah. miss you, Matthew. Everett, was there a, a favorite line or moment from this episode that stood out to you? Well, there's something. Um, can I actually can I bring up something from the first episode of this season? Oh, please. Is that allowed? <laughs> um, yeah. So you guys brought me out to talk about history stuff. So what one person from history who Roman Roy has always reminded me of is Richard Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell's son, who, when Oliver Cromwell became Lord Protector of England, basically the king, um, they suddenly realized, well, he's going to put his son in charge. We need to actually get his son some experience. His son was just some random guy. And so they did kind of the Kendall Roy thing, where they put him, like, you know, like literally for like a couple months at a time in, like, different positions of authority just to try to get him because his dad was getting mm. old and was not in good health. And it was like, you know, we got to get this guy some experience in time if we're going to try to, you know, put him in charge. Um, and uh, that always made me think of Roman Roy. Lo and behold, first uh, episode of the season, uh, Logan calls Roman Tumble Down Dick, which was Richard Cromwell's nickname. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, tremendous. I'm just saying. We need- in history, Tumble Down Dick did become Lord Protector for like a couple months, and then it all fell apart under his his you know incompetent rule. So maybe that's a sign that we should have our eyes on Roman. I'm just saying. I was thinking of looking up that reference, and then I just thought maybe it's just a Jesseism that was made up. But wow, you just uh, shifted things for us a little bit here. You're blowing our minds. <laughs> that's a. T- <laughs> I it's always a tremendous anticipated poll. this was Roman season. We've talked about this. Each kind of sibling has a season, but they've been very, they're playing it very coy so far, and that is a very astute clue. Um, wow. Yeah. 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 I wonder what percentage of succession viewers <laughs> pick that up or under. I was almost mad about that because I was like, that, that was for me and maybe a dozen people. Ex- <laughs> exactly. And no one else could get it. Yeah. But, but. But hey, now. Well, that's um, the that's the great thing about Succession is that they they pepper in this stuff that seems like yeah, it's just for me and you know my five friends who watch the show and are also huge history nerds or whatever. But then the the Zoomers start getting into it. You know, the Zoomers are are going nuts and are inconsolable uh, seeing that there's another John Barryman reference in uh, the third season finale. Uh, every, the, the kids, the teen, the teens are just losing their minds and rushing out to buy a copy of Dream Songs. They're all going to read that after dune now uh, so richard a, cromwell this... fever is going to sweep the nation you wait and see watch watch this space okay everett wow we're gonna have to bring you back as uh, as historical correspondent uh just to explain the <laughs> references in every episode that we did that we weren't even aware of uh yeah. but everett uh thank you so much for joining us and where can folks uh find your work uh well uh if you're listening to this you know how to find a podcast um mine is called age of napoleon it's Nothing about succession, but a lot more about history. Um, and then it's on, on Twitter, at Age of Napoleon. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I've learned a ton uh, from Age of Napoleon. It's a great and I think really approachable uh, podcast about really interesting time in history. So I, I really encourage folks to check that out. Um, 
All right. Uh, so thanks, as always, to Kate and Gabby. Uh, thanks, Everett. Thanks to our producer, Dan Black. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back on the Roycast next week uh, to talk about another new episode of Succession. Until then, everybody, take care of yourselves. Be well. Bye-bye. Years and years I run